0: chapter eight of flaming youth this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by mrs l sid flaming youth by samuel hopkins adams chapter eight the front door button was out of commission since constance had come to live at holiday knoll bringing her husband with her and taking over the management of the place The bell had developed a habit of being out of order. So had many other fixtures, schedules, and household appurtenances. Constance always meant to put them aright, and sometimes did. But they never seemed to stay put. As a housekeeper, Ralph Ventress used to remark with humorous resignation, Connie was a grand little society beauty. Of the beauty there could be no question. As she sat now on this winter's night, the glow of the reading lamp showing warm and soft upon her loose, rose-colored lounging robe, and her dreamy face. She was a picture which, unfortunately, lacked any observer. Fred Browning was out. Fred was often out in the evenings now, though they had been married less than two years. Not that it mattered greatly to the young wife. Fred had ceased to stimulate her senses. He had never stimulated her imagination. She got along well enough with him and equally well without him. "'Substitutes were not wanting. "'But just at the moment she rather wished he were there, "'because she thought she heard someone at the front door, "'though it might be only the beating of the blizzard, "'and it was so much trouble to rouse herself "'from the easy chair and the flimsy novel. "'That so many things were so much trouble "'was the bane of Constance's life. "'Her soul had begun to take on fat. "'Presently her lissome body would follow suit. "'Yes, there certainly was someone at the door.' She could discern now an impatient stamping. Probably Bob's, although he had said that he could not come before nine to see the baby, who was constantly fretting. Another superfluous trouble in a world of annoyances. Well, on the whole, it was less bother to go to the door than to look up a maid. Tossing her book aside, she walked into the hall. As she passed, she pressed an electric light button. Only one globe out of the cluster responded, and that weakly. Damn! Said Constance. I forgot to phone the company. She threw open the front door. In the storm center stood a man. He wore a long coat lined with seal, a coat which the luxurious Constance at once appraised and approved, and an astrakhan cap which he lifted, showing fair, close waves of hair. He peered into the dim entry. Is this, he began, and then in an eager exclamation, Mona! Constance drew a quick breath of shock and amazement. "'What?' "'A thousand pardons,' said the stranger. "'A stupid error.' He spoke with the accent of a cultivated American, but there was about him the vague, indefinable atmosphere of an older, riper, calmer civilization. "'Am I mistaken in supposing this to be Mrs. Fentress's home?' he asked courteously. "'No. Yes, it is,' answered Constance, still shaken." I would have telephoned before presenting myself, but the wires are down. What a furious storm! My taxi, he added cheerily, is stalled in your very largest and finest local snowdrift. Is Mrs. Fentersen? My mother? faltered Constance. He gazed on her keenly, incredulously. Your mother? That's hardly possible. Yet, yes, you are wonderfully like her. There was a caressing intonation in his voice as he said the words, Permit me. I am Carrie Scott. Oh, gasped Constance in dismay. Carrie Scott, the old romance about which she had heard her father joke her mother more than once, concerning which all the children had felt a lively curiosity, because it was supposed to be different from Mona's other little adventures. Carrie Scott, here in the flesh and in tragic ignorance of her mother's death, Commanding herself, she drew aside with a slight, gracious gesture which bade him enter. Bowing, he passed into the hallway and shook the snow from his coat. Not until he had reached the door of the library did she gather her forces to tell him. Hadn't you heard about Mother, Mr. Scott? She asked very gently. Her tone stopped him. His eyes were steady as he raised them to the lovely, pitying face before him. But hollow seemed suddenly to have fallen in beneath him. Not he whispered. She inclined her head. Nearly a year ago. Why haven't I heard? Why was I not told? He demanded. Father wrote you, I think. You must sit down. She pushed a chair around for him and laying light hands upon his shoulders slipped his coat back. Take it off, she said. He obeyed. He was like a man tranced. Seated under the lamplight, he stared fixedly into a dark corner of the room, as if to evoke a vision for his appeasement. Sharply intrigued, Constance took the opportunity of observing him at her leisure. He was, she decided, a delightful personality, all the more engaging for that touch of the exotic, that hint of potential romance which the men of her acquaintance did not have. No woman would have called him handsome. His features were too regular— and the finely mottled forehead was scarred vertically with a savagely deep V, which mercifully lost itself in the clustering hair a testimony to active war service there was confident distinction in his bearing and an atmosphere of quiet and somewhat ironic worldliness in voice and manner he looked to be a man who had experimented much with life in its larger meanings and found it amusing but perhaps not fulfilling Reckoning him contemporaneously with the implication of that betraying Mona in his first utterance, Constance thought, He must be nearly forty to have been one of Mother's suitors, but he looks hardly over thirty. She heard him sigh as he drew his spirit back from far distances, and was sensitive to the power of control implied in the composed countenance which he turned to her. You should be Constance, Ventris, Constance Browning, she corrected. "'I'm an old married woman of two years standing.' "'Grande he muttered. "'I think of you always as hardly more than a child. "'As I used to hear about you, one loses touch. "'You had not seen my mother for a long time, had you? "'Very long, many years, but one does not forget her kind. "'Constance, who had not seated herself during this passage of speech, "'crossed to the mantel and lifted from it a heavily framed photograph which she placed in the visitor's hands. That was taken a few months before she died. Unchanged, he breathed. Something imperative in Constance's burgeoning interest in the man drove her to ask, Did you... were you very much in love with her? There was daring in her tone, but there was compassion also. Because of his sense of the latter, he answered her frankly. No, not perhaps as most people understand it. Love asks much. I asked nothing. It was not, he smiled faintly, as one falls in love and falls out. Ah, she returned questioningly, tauntingly, but he held to the graver tone. She was all that dreams could be, and as unattainable as dreams. If she was like an angel to me, I suppose I was like a boy to her. She used to tell me about you and your sisters. Again he smiled. Once she said, "'Wait and come back and marry one of them.' "'But you did not wait,' accused Constance. "'Nor did you,' he retorted with a swift, ironic eye-flash, "'which she was to know so well later. "'She welcomed the change to a lighter and more familiar vein. "'How should I know?' she mocked. "'You sent no word of your claim. "'Is Mrs. Scott with you?' "'No,' he answered shortly, then in a suave tone.' It is more than a year now that I have been out of the world. The east, wild parts of Hindustan and northern China, and then the South Seas. I have a boy's passion for travel. But not for your native land. You are an American, aren't you? I have been, and I want to be again, but I shall need help. We Fentresses are terribly American. Don't you want us to reclaim you? Would you? then I may come back? You must. Father will want to see you. And I him. He is well? Very. Where can he find you? At the St. Regis for a few days. Do you think a few days enough to re-Americanize you? Say a few years, then. He rose and turned to give a long look at the portrait of Mona Fentress which he had set on the table. You have been more than kind to me, he said gravely. "'I cannot thank you enough.' "'I'm afraid I was clumsy and abrupt,' he shook his head. "'It must have been a shock to you.' "'Yes, but dreams do not die, and I still keep the dream. "'And perhaps,' he lifted an appealing gaze to her, "'perhaps as a legacy some little part of the friendship. "'I may hold that as a hope?' "'Yes,' said Constance. Her fingers stirred in his as he bent and touched light lips to her hand. Out into the tumultuous night, Carrie Scott carried two pictures, mother and daughter, strangely alike, strangely different, which interchanged and blended and separated again, like the evanescence of sunset-hued clouds. But it was the visual memory of the living woman which eventually held his inner eye, the pure, smooth contour of her face, the sumptuous curves of the figure beneath the suave folds of the clinging robe, the chast line of the lips contradicted by the half-veiled sensuality of the wide, humid, dear-soft eyes, a delicate but unsatisfied sensuality which might yet, as he read it, break down under provocation into reckless self-indulgence. Sensitive by nature to beauty in all its implications, inner and outer, he felt the enveloping atmosphere of her youth and sweetness, and sought to match it the swift intelligence, the eager responsiveness which had been Mona's. Had the daughter inherited these qualities of the mother? If she had, she would be irresistible. Mona Fentress, whatever relations she had maintained in her wayward laughing course of life, with other men, wholly unknown and unsuspected by Carrie Scott, had been to him all that was demanded by the ideal which he himself had formed of her, had given him a friendship infinitely wise and sweet and clear in spirit. Of Constance he had asked the chance to win a like friendship, yet in his heart, at once hopeful by instinct and cynical by experience, he knew from the evidence of those hungering eyes that if she gave at all it would be more than friendship, and if she chose to give, would he choose to take? From Mona's daughter at once so subtly like and unlike Mona, was he already a little in love with her? The question was still unsolved when he went to sleep. After he left, Constance returned to her book. Presently, it dropped from her hand. Dreams seeped into the craving eyes. Her husband found her so when he came in at midnight. "'What are you mooning over, Con?' he said testily. He was prone to the impatient mood when he had had too much to drink. "'I?' answered his wife. "'Oh, ghosts.' "'Rats,' said Fred Browning. "'Come to bed.' End of chapter 8